Uh, well, we're excited to be here with you today. We are experiencing some technical difficulties with our screen here, so that was not on your end. That was at our end, and our team's working hard to, to fix that. But I wanted to begin today uh, as we start off a new series by telling you a story. Several years ago, there was a gentleman whose name was Sky. Yes, like the blue sky above. And he was pastoring a church outside of the Chicago area. And in his church, he hosted a class. And he decided that this next season of this class he was teaching, that they were going to focus on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, for those of you who don't know where that is, the Sermon on the Mount is the most famous teaching of Jesus, the most famous kind of extended teaching. It covers the book of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so to start out his class, Sky said, hey, I want people to get a sense of this whole passage we're going to be teaching through. And so he read the whole passage as a whole, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now for us in our church, a sermon typically lasts anywhere from like 30 to 40 minutes. Well, Jesus's most famous, longest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, even if you go slow, is about 25 minutes. If you go fast, like I tend to talk, it's probably closer to 22. It wasn't a long reading. And so Sky got up and he read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And when he was done, he asked his class of about 50 people a question. Now, I need you to know the people in this class were a part of a conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing church. If Sky finished reading this passage and said, hey, I don't believe the Bible is true, or I think Jesus got these four things wrong, like he wouldn't have lasted till the end of the class. They would have fired him, kicked him out. Like this was a Bible-believing church. So Sky asked this powerful question when he finishes reading Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He says, how many of you think Jesus actually expects us to live out these commands? Remember, he's just read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And to the 50 people in his class that night, he says, how many of you think Jesus actually expects us to live out these commands? Now I want you to guess how many hands were raised. 50 people, all followers of Jesus, all believers in the Bible. How many hands went up? Zero. Not one person in his class said that they thought Jesus actually expected us to follow these commands. And Sky was, well, he was flabbergasted. He's blown away. He did not expect this response. And so like any good teacher, he asked a follow-up question. Well, well, why shouldn't we take Jesus seriously? And the next six slides I'm going to show you are the literal responses of people in his class. Somebody said, you know, uh, it's impossible to obey Jesus here. No one can live like this. <laughs> it's impossible to obey. No one can do what Jesus told us to do. Number two, Jesus, Jesus was illustrating a perfect life and how none of us can attain it. Number three, Jesus told us to turn the other cheek, but we only have two cheeks. Number four, these commands aren't practical. <laughs> like they don't actually work in our world today. Number five, if we do these things, people will walk all over us. And then number six, this is no way to survive in a dangerous world. See, if, if Sky had told them that Jesus got these things wrong and the Bible wasn't true, 
They, they would have fired him. He could have been the pastor of this Bible-believing church. But they had rationalized away the very words of Jesus. In your Bible, in this section, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the letters may be read. And red letters indicate the literal words of Jesus. And so as Sky was trying to process this amazing class that he did not expect, he asked a third question. And it was as much a question as it was a statement. He said, so was Jesus a fool for following these ideas himself? After all, by loving his enemies, he ended up on a cross. And what's the class supposed to say? Jesus was a fool? Well, the other option that they'd already indicated is that they felt like it was foolish to follow these words. And if Jesus followed them, what does that make Jesus? If you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable this morning, that's intentional. Because I think, friends, that we have a problem. And that problem is this, that we love Jesus but we don't want to obey him. We love Jesus. We love singing the praises of Jesus. We love talking about how we follow Jesus and that we're seeking to become like Jesus. But when pressed with a command or a vision or a picture or a a view of life that we feel like doesn't work with our preconceived notions, with our biases in the world that we see, we don't want to obey Jesus. And friends, in our lives, if there's a gap between I love Jesus, I just don't want to obey him here, that's the place where God wants to go to work in our hearts. The 20th century writer G.K. Chesterton famously said this. He said, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting It has been found difficult and left untried. The Christian ideal has not been found tired and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. And that's the challenge I want to present to you today and for the next seven weeks, because we're going to wrestle with this question. What if Jesus was serious? With the words that we read in Scripture— specifically in that passage that Sky read, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. What if Jesus was actually serious? He wasn't talking hypothetical. He wasn't talking idealistic. He wasn't talking, this is works in the, in the world that I live in, but 2,000 years from now, you're going to live in America, and it's not going to work there. No, what if Jesus was serious when he said things like, blessed are the merciful, Or you are blessed when they insult you. Or go the second mile, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, and seek first the kingdom of God. And so many more. What if Jesus was serious? And what if we started to take him serious and we lived these words out ourselves? So starting today, for the next seven weeks, we're going to make our home in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we're going to take this passage apart chunk by chunk. And here's where we're going to start today with our big idea, that Jesus invites us into a new way of living and seeing the world today. He doesn't invite us into a new way of living and seeing the world in heaven, and he isn't just inviting us to to look at the world and live in the world in a certain way that worked in his day. He's saying today, here and now, in the world that you are in, 
with all of its pros and cons, with all of its challenges and opportunities, here is a new way of living and seeing the world. And as I mentioned, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up or turn it on and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew is the first of four biographies of the life and teaching of Jesus. They're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew uh, is the passage. Matthew 5 to 7 is the passage we're going to be camping out in. And uh, if you're new to the scriptures, Matthew was one of the closest followers of Jesus. He was formerly a tax collector. He had worked for the Roman Empire, collecting their taxes of his own people, the Jews. And Jesus called him and invited him to leave that behind and become his follower. And after spending three years with Jesus, Matthew wrote down what he saw and what he heard. And here's what, how his recording of this message of Jesus that has changed the world. Some people call it the best sermon by the best preacher ever. And it begins in Matthew 5 verse 1. Matthew writes, So when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we open your word today, that you would open our hearts and you would reveal to us the places where we have sought to edit and revise and make your word fit our world. We pray that you would narrow the gap between our love for you and our obedience of you. And we pray that we would take you just as seriously as you take us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, today in the time that we have, I want to share with you four surprising things that Jesus does in his most famous sermon. There's four really surprising things that we find in the very first section of this message from Jesus. And here's the first thing that Jesus does that kind of shocks us. Jesus offers us a good news list, not another to-do list. In this message, in this first section of his message, Jesus offers us a good news list, not another to-do list. Now, I don't know what your relationship is or thoughts are about a to-do list, but I have never met a to-do list that I didn't like. In fact, I am one of those people 
who adds things to the to-do list that I have already done just so that I can have the sole gratification of checking it off. That, that's, that's my own struggle, my own problem. I, I love having lists. And when many of us read scripture, we tend toward a pattern which says, what do I need to do? What are the things this passage is telling me to do? And so we add it to a to-do list. But this is a fundamentally flawed view if we are thinking that those things that we are adding to our to-do list will somehow make us more loved by God, um, open up more of God's grace to us, raise our standing with God. And that kind of view we call salvation by works and throughout the teaching of Jesus and the entire New Testament. This, this worldview is rejected. Paul famously says in Ephesians 2, he says, it is by grace you've been saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is a gift from God. And so as followers of Jesus, as a Bible-believing church, we believe that salvation is not by works. It is by the grace of God through our faith in God. It's through what Christ has done for us. But many of us, when we read a passage like this, like Matthew 5, 1 through 12, we start creeping back into this salvation by works with a slight twist. We start living back into a salvation by attitude view where we begin to think or at least consider, hey, if I had those attitudes, if I added those to my to-do list, then I would be who God wants me to be. Then I would have God's favor. Then I would experience more of God's love. Then I would experience more of his grace. And if salvation by works (laughs) is inconsistent with scripture, so is salvation by attitude. So when we read these words in Matthew 5, like here in Matthew 5, Verses three through six, blessed are the poor in spirit. We're not adding poor in spirit to our checklist. It isn't, hey, go out and be more poor in spirit. It is not blessed are those who mourn. Hey, go mourn, go find something to mourn. It is not, you know, add humility to your list and work on being more humble or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, I need to add that to my list. It is not that. Jesus is not declaring, hey, you need to do these things and then you will be blessed. Jesus is declaring good news that in his audience that day, there were people, let me go back one slide, who were already poor in spirit. There were people already who were mourning things that had happened in life. There were people who were humble and there were people who were hungering and thirsting for righteousness. The, the Greek word for righteousness that we translate righteousness can also be translated justice. There are people who are hungering and thirsting for justice. And he was saying to those people, hey guys, good news. Where you are today, you are blessed. And this is a radical idea for us because we constantly read the words of Jesus through the lens of what do I have to do? As opposed to Jesus declaring good news that we don't have to do anything because he's going to do everything. I love what Stanley Hauerhasse, a theologian, said about this passage. He said, too often these characteristics of the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes are those blessed are statements in Matthew 5, are turned into ideals 
we must strive to attain, like to-do lists, things to go after. As ideals, they can become formulas for power rather than descriptions of the kind of people characteristic of the new age brought by Christ. Thus, Jesus does not tell us that we should try to become poor in spirit or meek or peacemakers. He simply says that many who are called into the kingdom will find themselves so constituted. In other words, Jesus is not proposing new goals. He's introducing new realities. And so there's somebody in his audience that day who's mourning. And you, some of you today, are mourning. You're grieving. Some of you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness and justice and for our world to be made right in every area and every way as God wants. Some of you, have been humbled by your experiences in 2020. Some of you are are poor in spirit. You realize how weak and insufficient you are to the challenges in front of you and to you. Jesus says here in Matthew 5, not I've got more things for you to do. No, he announces good news that his blessing is available to you today, as you are. And that's the second surprising thing Jesus does. Jesus is inviting those he had just touched to enter his kingdom as they are. Jesus had just finished an incredibly busy day when he sat down to teach this message. In Matthew 4, just right before this, we learn what Jesus did the day before he gave this message. In Matthew 4, 23, it says, Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, which was an area in this region, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news spread about him throughout Syria. So they brought him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics. And he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And so Jesus has been out healing. He's attracting crowds from a large number of areas. And so 425 ends this chapter, chapter 4, with this description of him healing and and this crowd following him. And then chapter 5 begins with him saying that, that he sat down. And his disciples sat down on the side of a mountain and he began to teach. Scholars believe that this, this mountain, that's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was sitting on a, a mountainside next to a body of water. And in the, in the day of Jesus, if you were a rabbi or a teacher, you didn't stand to teach like I am. You sat and everyone else sat in front of you. And as Jesus begins to teach, he begins to tell them, about how they can begin to experience his kingdom, how the kingdom of God was available to them. Jesus was teaching them that the kingdom of God is available and you can step into it right now. They didn't have to get their lives together. 
They didn't have to get all these to-do lists done to make themselves worthy. He is declaring that they are blessed exactly where they are right now. They are blessed in the exact circumstance they are living in that day. And he is announcing to them that they can enter into, they can step into his kingdom. Now you say, Scott, what is the kingdom of God? Well, put succinctly, the kingdom of God, according to Dallas Willard, who's one, I think, the best experts on the teaching of Jesus in this area, he says the kingdom of God is where what God wants done is done. Everywhere in the world where what God wants done is done, that is the kingdom. And Jesus talked about the kingdom more than he talked about anything else. In one translation, the the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven appears 126 times. Jesus is pounding the hammer of his kingdom again and again. And it's the very first thing he announces when he begins to teach. He says, my kingdom is near. My kingdom is available. My kingdom is here and you can enter into it. And Jesus is announcing That it's not some faraway thing, but it has come near. And if you begin a relationship with him, you can be a participant. You can be a citizen of his kingdom. Dallas Willard goes on in another place to say the Beatitudes in particular are not teachings on how to be blessed. We already covered that in the last point. It's not how to be blessed. They are not instructions on how to do anything. They do not indicate the conditions that are especially pleasing to God or good for human beings, nor are the Beatitudes indications of who will be on top, quote, after the revolution. They are explanations and illustrations drawn from the immediate setting of the present availability of the kingdom through personal relationship to Jesus. They single out cases that provide proof that in him, in Jesus, the rule of God from the heavens truly is available in life circumstances that are beyond hope. Jesus is saying that you can be blessed even when you mourn. You can be blessed even when you are meek, when you're not asserting your own agenda, that you can be blessed even when you're poor in spirit, that you can be blessed when you're being persecuted. On the surface, those are not conditions that we consider blessings. So he says, hey, how's your life going, man? I'm just so blessed. I'm just so blessed. I'm hashtag blessed. Well, how are you? Hashtag blessed, Scott. You know what? I'm persecuted. People say terrible things about me. I am mourning and grieving and crying and my heart is broken. Uh, I'm, I'm meek. Uh, I'm not asserting my own agenda. I, I'm poor in spirit. Scott, that doesn't sound like blessed conditions. Well, only if you're thinking about it from a worldly, earthly view. But Jesus is saying that in him, in the kingdom It is possible to be blessed in life circumstances that are beyond hope. And that's why Jesus surprises people, people who were poor in spirit, people who were meek, people who were humble, people who were mourning, people who were being persecuted, people who were having terrible things said about them. He was saying, you can enter into my kingdom and experience my rule just as you are today. 
and it caused people to radically change their understanding and view of the world. Here's the third surprising thing Jesus does. Jesus radically inverts our understanding of blessing and happiness. Jesus radically inverts, turns upside down our understanding of blessing and happiness. Now, I, I mentioned a little while ago the, the, the meaning of a Greek word. The, the Bible was not originally written in English because when the Bible was written, English was not a known language, hadn't formed yet. The language of the Mediterranean in the time of Jesus was Greek. And so when Matthew writes this book, he writes in Greek. And so the, the word that he uses that we translate as blessed in Matthew 5, 1 through 12 is the word makarios. And it means the highest type of well-being for humans. For the Greeks, many of you are aware the Greeks had their own um, pantheon of gods, you know, Zeus, Ares, uh, all the gods. The, this word makarios was the word the Greeks would use for the blissful experience of their gods. And so when, when Matthew uses this word, recording the words of Jesus, what he's saying is that in these situations, meek, poor in spirit, humble, persecuted, mourning, that you are experiencing the highest type of well-being for humans. Now you go, Scott, when I have mourned, I have not felt like I'm on top of the world experiencing the blissful experience of the gods. Well, that's because for many of us, our view of blessed comes from a flawed human worldview. See, in our flawed human worldview is if you're rich, you're blessed. And if you're poor, you're cursed. If you're winning, you're blessed. And if you lose, you're cursed. If things go well for you, you're blessed. If things don't go well for you, you're cursed. And Jesus is radically inverting that view of blessing, that view of happiness. You could also translate the word makarios as happy. Happy are those who mourn. On what planet, Scott? On Jesus's planet, where Jesus is king. And friends, our view of blessed and happiness, sadly, is far more cultural than it is Christ-centered. Because if it was Christ-centered, we would begin to wrestle with and realign our view of blessing and happiness in light of this text. And this is why Jesus makes the statements he does. Consider Matthew 5, 11, where it says, you are blessed, you are happy, you are experiencing the highest level of human well-being when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Jesus is saying it's available to you because of me and through me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For this is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so Jesus is saying, hey, if you're going to be my follower, if you're going to step into my kingdom, if you're going to have a relationship with me, I'm going to radically invert. I'm going to turn upside down the way that you view this idea of being blessed and being happy. And this is why I just want to encourage you to pause as we begin this series and reckon with the fact that we are being formed by our cultural worldview and we don't even realize it. 
We're being formed by all these voices all around us. And this is why we've been talking about for a few weeks in our previous series on mental health, and we're going to continue in this series. We're going to encourage you to reckon with this question, whose voice is loudest in your life? The data continues to come out that on a daily basis, we are far more likely as followers of Jesus to check in and scroll through social media than we are to open this book and marinate in what it says. We're far more likely to spend hours watching cable news than we are to even spend 10 minutes asking ourselves the question, what does God say about this challenge that I'm facing? And I don't just mean you. I mean me too. I have had to set up restrictions and boundaries because I'm not doing this well. I just updated my software on my phone a couple days ago. And on the newest version of iOS for my iPhone, I have the ability to set limits for myself. And so this is literally, for my phone, screenshots. I've set a limit. This is the amount of time I am limited to on social media. This is a a, a setting called downtime. And what it means is that from 10 p.m. to 7 a.m., the only thing I can do on my phone is call and text. I've had to do that because if I don't, when I get up in the morning, I will turn to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook before I open God's word. I will allow those voices to be greater than God's. And as a result, my view of blessing, happiness, and so many other things will be guided by what our culture says, not by what God says. And I'll find myself resisting what God wants to do. And so I just want to encourage you that as we go through this series, if it seems upside down, let it be upside down and upside. Align yourself with the upside down reality of Jesus. Don't try to turn Jesus right side up in the view of our culture. Allow Jesus to turn you upside down, which is essentially turning you to see things rightly and clearly. Here's our fourth and last thing Jesus does. Jesus offers real hope in seemingly impossible circumstances. Jesus offers real hope in seemingly impossible circumstances. We know from from scholars and experts on the day of Jesus and the day of Jesus that the people Jesus was attracting to follow him, including many of these who were bringing people to him who were ill and in need of healing, were not the cream of the crop culturally. They were not the people who had power or who had influence. Many of them were people who felt like they were on the bottom. And so when Jesus gathers this crowd on the side of a hill next to a body of water, and he begins to tell them that they are blessed and happy in him, that the highest ideal and experience of human flourishing is available to them where they are today. What Jesus was doing What he was saying is that it's possible, friends, in your impossible circumstances for you to have hope. See, he healed them on one day 
And then he invited them into his kingdom the next. He healed their diseases. And then he said, I'm not just here to heal your bodies. I'm here to radically change your lives, to invert your understanding and your worldview, and to invite you into a relationship with me. Not one day when you become a better version of yourself, but today. And scholars believe that the things that he lists here, the blessings, the beatitudes were very real circumstances that his audience was in. And he was serious that day when he spoke to them, that they could be blessed in the midst of being persecuted for being his follower, that they could be blessed even as they were mourning and grieving, that they could be blessed even as they felt poor in spirit. And he was serious. He wasn't speaking idealistically to them. No, he was serious and they took him seriously. And I just want to encourage you as we start this series to be careful that you don't take the discomfort out of Jesus's message. Because there are certain people and certain times in our lives where Jesus's message is totally comforting. And if you were a person that day seated there listening Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted and you were mourning, that was a message of great comfort. That message brought, brought peace. But if you were the kind of person who was the opposite of meek or the opposite of humble, then you began to recognize that Jesus was challenging you and calling you out of that way of life, and you were actually opposed to what God was doing. And I will say there's some times where I've loved the words of Jesus, and there's some times where the words of Jesus have made me so uncomfortable. And we have a history as a nation of taking the discomfort out of Jesus' message. When our country was founded, there was a guy named Thomas Jefferson who played an uh, undeniable role in the founding of our country. But he also became incredibly famous and well-known for what he did to the Bible. This is a picture of the Jefferson Bible. If you notice, there are pieces that are missing. And over 200 years ago, what Jefferson did, he took an exacto knife to the Bible. And any section that he felt like couldn't be believed a miracle of Jesus or didn't make sense to his his in that day modern sensibility of the world, he would literally cut out of the Bible. And he created his own translation of the Bible that worked for his sensibilities. And while it sounds crazy to take an exacto knife to the Bible, that is exactly what the people we heard from the beginning of this message did. They didn't think Jesus was serious. And so they edited out the things that made them uncomfortable. Friends, the only way for Jesus to offer you hope in impossible circumstances is if you stop dictating to Jesus where he's serious and where he's not, where he's believable and where he's not, where he's to be followed and where he's to be ignored. And if Jesus is inviting us into a new way of living and seeing the world, if he's inviting us into a new way of living in this moment and seeing this moment, then we're going to have to allow Jesus to comfort us in certain places and disturb us in places. To give us that deep sigh of relief and to also give us that deep uh, of conviction 
And as we go through this series, my hope is that Jesus will speak powerfully into your life and mine and that he will show us where he is serious, where he's calling us to live in ways that we never have before. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that, that in times in our lives when we were mourning, poor in spirit, humbled, persecuted, insulted, where it felt like the world was on top of us or against us, that you came alongside us and you comforted us and you brought us peace. For so many of us, that's been our experience with you this year. When, when we felt like we couldn't lose anything else, or we couldn't lose anyone else, you never let us go. You were right there beside us, fulfilling your promise to never leave us and never forsake us. And so we thank you for your comfort. But you don't just comfort the afflicted, Jesus. You afflict the comfortable. And I will confess that there have been times in recent days where you've disturbed me, unsettled me, and inverted the way I was looking at a circumstance, the way I was looking at the world. Jesus, I believe there's some of us who are listening today that we haven't pulled a knife out to create our own version of the Bible, but we've avoided certain things you said because they just made us uncomfortable. We've rationalized away some of your teaching because it didn't make sense to our sensibilities or maybe to our politics or maybe to our worldview. And Jesus, I never want to have to say that I was dictating to you what I should do or what you mean. Jesus, I want to live surrendered and submitted to you, taking you seriously. And so today, if there's somebody watching who you're convicting, you're challenging, I pray that you'd give them the strength to face that and deal with the consequences, to adjust and change the way they're living and seeing this world by the power of your grace. And for the person today who's watching Jesus, who, who feels totally down and out, like they have nothing left to give, <laughs> and like they're not worthy of you, I pray that they would know that that place at the end of their rope is exactly the place that you want to meet them. That they don't have to have it all together to step into your kingdom. They just have to look to you, put their faith and trust in you, and surrender their life to you. And you can do more than they could ever ask or imagine. If you're watching today and you've never had a moment like that, you've never trusted your life to Jesus, then I want to invite you to do that right now. You could pray a prayer as simple as this one. Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I've tried to live life my way and I've got the results of that and they're heartbreaking. I'm a sinner, Jesus. I am broken and I am poor in spirit. I need you. So today I put my faith and trust in you, Jesus. Thank you for coming for me. Thank you for dying for me. 
I want your freedom and I want your grace. I give my life to you. I trust you today for the very first time. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today and you surrendered your life to Jesus for the very first time, we would love to celebrate with you. You could let us know simply by sending us a text message. You could text 928-288-5490. Put the word Jesus in the message and one of our team members will follow up with you. We'd love to encourage you and help you as you take your next steps. Thanks, Julie. Beautiful. Thank you, Julie. Well, Pastor Scott, obviously, after each sermon, we go into next steps. Yeah. And so I'm going to ask you, do we have, what, what next we steps do you have? We do. Uh, we got three. Uh, and the first one, I think, is probably the easiest. And so we're going to ask you, starting today, to read through Matthew 5 through 7 each week from now to Thanksgiving. Now you go, Scott, that's three chapters a week. Yeah, not that hard. Again, I told you the whole thing, if you read it in one sitting, is like 25 minutes. And so we've put together a little guide here on this next slide uh, that guides you through a a chunk a day, Sunday through Saturday. And and they're short enough that if you miss a day, which is going to happen, you can easily double up. This is actually a a wallpaper for your phone, Dave. You can download and save. It's available at prescottcornerstone.com slash Jesus hyphen is hyphen serious. It'll also be on our Facebook page, Instagram later today, but you can download this and just save it on your phone as a reminder. And we'd encourage you just to keep reading through it again and again. I think sometimes we forget that the value of really marinating and meditating on scripture, that was a big takeaway from our last series. And so I'd encourage you, if you want to even keep it a little bit fresher each week, uh, change translations. So I'm going to do the Christian Standard Bible this week that I preach from. I'm also going to use uh, like the New Living, um, the ESV that I used to preach from, the, the Message, um, the uh, Amplified Bible. I'm just going to change translations each week and keep reading through it and really marinate in it and ask God to help me see things I hadn't seen before. So that's the first next step. The second next step that we're going to encourage you to do is to sit down and outline your definition of the good life. And so when you think about that, that definition of makarios, that word for blessed, it's basically the good life, the, the highest well-being for a human. And so we would encourage you to get, get up a journal out, the top of it, write down the good life is, and then describe what you think the good life is, what it means to be blessed and happy. And then I would encourage you throughout this series to check that list Versus what you read in Matthew. And I think in all of our lives, there's probably places where our vision of the good life is more cultural than Christ-centered. And so we're going to invite you to to identify what that is and be honest. Nobody's going to see this but you and God. And he already knows, so just be honest with yourself because he's already seen it. And and compare that throughout the series to what we're learning um, in the text. And then number three we'd encourage you to discuss this message with your community group or another Jesus follower. As I said, Jesus sat them down. He sat down and he taught. And so you, you have to believe that as they were walking home that day, they're like, what'd you think about that? You know, and they had a conversation and the, the scriptures were never intended to be read in isolation. I know you may be watching this service by yourself if you're not part of a, a watch party or a community group, but just call up somebody and say, hey, I'm going to send you a video link. Will you watch this video? Or maybe if the person, you know, goes to Cornerstone, say, hey, let's, let's grab coffee this week or go for a walk outside. 
have a video call and just say, hey, what'd you think about that? How did God speak to you? What'd you, th- what'd you, what'd you think of, of what Scott shared and what you read? And we just encourage you to not go through this series by yourself, but to go through it with somebody else. So. That's huge. That's huge, Scott. I think I love the, the point number two, right, in terms of next steps, in terms, I think a lot of us have definitions of what not, what we don't want uh-huh. um, the good life to be, but really taking time to, to formulate and then yeah. being able to compare that, right, to the words. So, Absolutely. Huge. And speaking of, um, you, you talked a little bit about the kingdom of God mm-hmm. and what that is. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more um, in terms of what you see the kingdom of God is? Yeah, so the kingdom of God is the most um, uh, repeated topic of Jesus' teaching. When he begins teaching in Matthew 4 or in Mark chapter 1, he begins teaching about the availability or the nearness of his kingdom. Uh, Willard says it's where God, what God wants done is done. Another definition is the reign or the rule of God. And so we tend to think about kingdoms in terms of very physical realities, like the kingdom of America or the kingdom of Rome or the kingdom of uh, Alexander the Great, this physical reality. Well, the kingdom of God is a non-physical reality. It's not defined by borders, but it's real and it's tangible and it's available. And it's, he was saying, hey, my kingdom is coming and it is the experience of living in relationship to me. And it is ultimately what will finally uh, be in totality experienced when Jesus returns. And so in the meantime, between his resurrection and today, his kingdom is growing and advancing. And there are places in the world, there are places in our lives where what God wants done is done. But there's also places where the kingdom of God honestly is opposed. Because there's another kingdom in this world that is also non-physical. And it's the kingdom of our enemy. And that kingdom is opposing God's kingdom. So I know for some people it's a little bit abstract because we're so concrete, you know. We tend to think about this kind of very physical kingdom. But it's the biggest teaching of Jesus, and we'll continue to talk about it throughout the series. Again, on our resource page where we mentioned that download is, um, prescottcornerstone.com slash Jesus hyphen is hyphen serious. There's a number of books on there, including Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, which is not a short book, but I think it's the best book that unpacks the teaching on the kingdom. And um, if you're looking to go deeper, I'd recommend that as a place to start. That's incredible. Thank you, Scott. Um, you know, I'm a history buff, uh-huh. and so obviously you, you spoke about Thomas Jefferson, uh-huh. Founding Fathers, um, and the Jefferson Bible. I hadn't heard that before. Can you maybe talk a little yeah, bit more so about Yeah, so Jefferson had a hard time with believing the miracles of Jesus. He had a hard time believing in the resurrection of Jesus because it didn't fit his uh, scientific worldview. And so many of the miracles of Jesus, like raising Lazarus from the dead, um, feeding the 5,000, Jesus's own resurrection, and some of his other teachings he didn't find credible. And so he cut those out of his Bible and created his own translation that that, he didn't call it the Jefferson Bible, but historians did. And so I think it's an extreme example of what happens when we edit out Jesus. But I've discovered even in my own life that there are places where I tend to quickly accept the words of Jesus. And there's places where sometimes I struggle. And even times in the past, I'll be honest, where I've gone, Jesus doesn't really mean that. And part of what this study is doing for me is it's causing me to go back and say, do I believe he's serious everywhere? And do I believe he's to be followed everywhere, whether I'm comfortable with it initially or not? And so uh, so that's kind of the Jefferson Bible. You can dig into that if you want to Google it. Uh, I'm not sure where it's available. That picture is from where it's on display. It's been saved historically and um, kind of an interesting tidbit. 
It is, right? I mean, that, that physical part of kind of removing yeah, uh, the things that were like, ah, let's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so that's awesome. So, you know, uh, Pastor Scott, is there any final thoughts? I mean, what, what kind of final thoughts should we take from uh, the beginning of this uh, Yeah, this so two things. Uh, I would say, one, I just encourage you to stay with us. We're going to continue to unpack this piece by piece. And so this is a series where if you're not going to be with us on a specific Sunday, go back and watch it. We're going to build on things each week. And there's more I could say this week, but I just didn't have the time. And I knew we've got weeks to come. And we would just encourage you, if you've got somebody that you're looking to connect to church, this is a great time to invite them to come alongside. We're going to be in Matthew 5 through 7. And those guides on that Sunday through Saturday guide are basically where we're going to be each week. So if you want to, you can kind of read ahead and get a heads up on where we're headed.